Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts. The podcast to launch, progress and excel your career as a Privacy Pro. Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. Hi everyone and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at Kazient Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at Kazient Privacy Experts. Jamal is an established and comprehensively qualified privacy professional with a demonstrable track record solving enterprise-wide data privacy and data security challenges for SMEs through complex global organizations. To date, he has provided privacy and GDPR compliance solutions to organizations across six continents and in 30 jurisdictions, helping safeguard the personal data of over a billion data subjects worldwide. Hi, Jamal. Hey, Jamila. How's it going? Good. How are you? Fantastic. Fantastic. And I'm always in such a great mood when we have an ama- another amazing guest on the podcast. Why don't you tell us who today's amazing guest is? Yeah, so our guest today is W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and he is an expert in backup and recovery systems, a space he has been working in since 1993. He has written four books on the subject, is the chief technical evangelist at Druva, a data protection as a service company. He has written four books on the subject, the fourth of which is Modern Data Protection from O'Reilly, and it was published in May 2021. He is the host of the Restore It All podcast and the founder and webmaster of BackupCentral.com, a website dedicated to backup and recovery. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, And as we always do, we start off with an icebreaker question. So it's Friday. What are you most looking forward to about the weekend? I will get some time to work on my newest hobby, which is woodworking. So I'm I'm officially in the stage that I'm just calling the paying stage, (laughs) where (laughs) where I just keep paying for things and then trying to figure out where to put them. Uh, I have to finish that phase before I can move on to the actually doing something phase. What is your first big project that you want to make? I'm going to make an end table for the family room. We we actually have some new couches Mm -hmm. that are slightly, I, I don't know, less wide. I don't know what skinnier is that be the right word i don't know anyway they've left room for some end tables so that's going to be my first project as a as an end table we'll see how that goes cool let us know we can attach some links to the pictures in the description of the podcast absolutely (laughs) well let's see how i'll be as interested as you are (laughs) (laughs) is that a hobby you picked up during lockdown or it is on the list of uh lockdown hobbies yes unfortunately there are a few 
But, uh, <laughs> I, I think most people have that view. <laughs> this is only the latest, yeah. I wish you very good luck with it. Thanks. I'm, I'm sure you'll be excellent at it. Moving on to our data. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Oh, okay. What's your plans for the weekend, huh? What's the... Saturday, I think I'm seeing some friends. On a Sunday, I volunteer at a homework club connected to the youth club I volunteer at. So helping kids who have missed school because of the pandemic, helping them catch up. So shouting at kids, really, on a Sunday. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just about to say that's really nice of you until I realized your true motivation. No, it's... <laughs> is, is, it, is it training for when you're going to take over the country as prime minister? Yeah, obvious, obviously. No, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, to help them learn to make sure they're on the right track, especially in the area of volunteer. It's quite a deprived area of Cardiff. So, right. Yeah, just helping them with homework, trying to remember however many years ago, 12 years ago when I sat my GCSEs, trying to remember what came up then. So yeah, should be interesting. It's always interesting every week. Fantastic. What are you doing this weekend, Jamal? This weekend, I have the pleasure of training another bunch of a group of mentees on the Certified Information Privacy Professional over Europe. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Nice. Hope it goes well. It should be interesting. And how? Wh- what number cohort is this? I have lost count of the cohorts. The cohorts is not important. What's important is the 100% success rate, which we're still enjoying. And wow. I'm keeping my fingers crossed to make sure that every person, every single person in this cohort gets everything they came for and really goes and thrives with their career as well. Long may the 100% success rate continue. Amen. Right. So data-y questions. Curtis, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're known as Mr. Backup. How did you get that name? You know, backup is an area that most people don't stay in very long. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the job that we often give to junior people, right? You know, you know he's the new guy. What are we going to give him? Well, we'll give him backups because nobody wants to do the backups. Mm-hmm. And which, by the way, is a horrible idea. It, it, I, I hate that practice, but it that is the practice. And that yeah. is how I got my first job in IT 30 years ago. And <laughs> unlike most people, I just never got out of it. I started getting known for having a, a penchant toward that. And I, I don't know, know really where it came, but basically I was this weird person that actually liked backup. So, you know, everybody else just got out of it as quickly as they could. And the next thing I know, I was like, well, I might as well just, you know, go with what you know and started marketing it. So, awesome. nice. so you, you found something about backing up data that you found quite inspiring or passionate. And you just said, you know what? I actually enjoy this and I'm going to stick with it. And then you became the best at it. I, I think I only know one or two other people that have spent their career specializing in this topic. Most people move around. And so it reminds me very much of something that my dad told me growing up, which was constantly, he would tell me that that he didn't care what I became, like in terms of choosing a profession. He's like, I don't care if you're digging ditches for a living, just dig the best damn ditch that you mm-hmm. can dig, right? And honestly, backup is kind of the ditch digging <laughs> of the <laughs> IT industry. And so, yeah, I've just tried to do it as best as I can. I love that. Those values that have uh, embedded into you growing up from your father, and uh, may may he be blessed, is one of the values that we really have in the academy. It's the value of excellence. And everything that we do at Kazian and everything we do at the Privacy Pros Academy and the values that we try to instill on all of our mentees across the Accelerator program is that level of excellence. Everything you do, do with excellence. So uh, it's it's absolutely awesome to have such a great person with such as uh, yourself, Mr. Backup here, 
talking about how it doesn't matter what the niche is, it doesn't matter what it is that you do. The most important thing is that you do it with excellence. So thank you for sharing that with us, Curtis. Absolutely. What are some of the common mistakes you see people doing that always makes you like go, ah, or cringe? Mistake number one is simply thinking that something doesn't need to be backed up. That's literally the one that I find myself arguing all the time. (laughs) So it's in the cloud. It doesn't need to be backed up. It's a SaaS service. It doesn't need to be backed up. Or it's just my laptop. I think I could say most companies don't protect their endpoints. They don't back up their laptops. And yet a significant portion of those companies' intellectual property at one point is residing on the laptop. And while you might not lose everything, you will lose the most recent version of important things that you're people are working on. That's, I'd say that's number one. And then the number two, and this really goes back to the ransomware thing, is storing your backups in such a way that they can't be attacked by the thing that will hurt your primary. So historically, that just meant sending it offsite, right? So you're, we're protecting from a, a hurricane or you know a flood or a fire. But now we have to make sure, and I'll just have to back up a little bit. Historically, it was easy to do that. You had a box of tapes you handed it to a man in a van, right? And then, you know, he goes away and, and saves your tapes. Well, now most people are doing disk-based backups. And unfortunately, those disk-based backups, even if they're, quote, off-site, they're possibly running in a cloud data center that is still directly electronically accessible. And so the, the number one thing that I see people, once they've gotten past that, you know, I need to back up the data part, they get to this part where they do their best, they back up the data, they store it, they even create an offsite copy, but that offsite copy is still directly accessible via the same things that would attack their data center. And mainly what I'm talking about here is ransomware, right? Not only can ransomware just blindly attack your server, just like it's any other server, but there are ransomware products, and I hate saying that name, but that, that word ransomware I don't know what else to call them because they are they are making money, right? Mm-hmm. There are ransomware tools that are specifically targeting backups, right? They're specifically targeting even specific vendors of backups, right? That they have specific attack methods for different vendors' products. So you've got to store your backups in such a way that they can't be attacked by ransomware. Uh, that's super useful to know. And I know speaking across uh, the board with so many privacy professionals and with many organizations, you're right. The, the the number one misconception they seem to have is, oh, yeah, we're using AWS, we're using Google uh, web servers, and it's fine. We don't need to back any of that up. It is, like you say, a big misconception. And one of the things that you've highlighted there is that it's actually still important to get it right. So what can companies do or what can privacy pros do to advise their organizations, advise their clients to make sure that we get this right in the easiest way possible? Well, you protected the information in two ways. One is you you sort of have the the traditional concept of privacy where you're protecting from inappropriate access, right? That's sort of outside my purview, except to make sure that when you store backups, they are stored encrypted. And at this point, everybody should be encrypting their backups, but I know not everybody's encrypting their backups. So that's number one. And then number two, if you're storing personal information on behalf of other people, that data, you know, this is also included in the GDPR, for example, is that data also needs to be protected from loss. And so in in the traditional backup and recovery sense. And so they just need to make sure that all of the data that they're 
creating uh, or is created on their behalf is protected. I guess the, the biggest mistake that I'm seeing is that we used to have a, a negative assumption, meaning I assume that the data is not backed up unless someone proves it to me otherwise. What has happened when we've migrated to the cloud is that people have done the opposite. They assume that it's being protected unless someone proves them otherwise. I just wish they would stop that, right? So I'd like them to understand that that basic concept of the three, two, one rule, because if you're if whatever you think qualifies as backup doesn't meet that most basic definition, then you do not have backup of that asset. Let me just use a, a perfect example, Microsoft 365. I think it's a great service. We use it at Druva, right, to, for communication. And they actually have some really good data protection type features that mimic backup, but they are not backup. And really it, it stops at the two, right? So we have the three, two, one rule. They have many, many versions. They have way more than three. I think the default number of versions for each file in, in OneDrive and SharePoint is 500. But are they storing it on two different devices that are you know separate? They, they don't, right? And someone might argue with me and say, well, that's not true. 365 uses, they have uh, delayed replicas as part of their system. But that's for them because of their service SLA. They want the service to stay up. They do have a delayed replication specifically for their service, but I've asked them directly whether or not I could use that delayed copy for my purposes. And the answer was an unequivocal no. So that doesn't count as a two. And then certainly if we don't have the two, we don't have the one. And so if you look at your service, any of the decent mainstream cloud providers, if you actually ask them the question, do I need to be backing this up? They will straight, straight out just tell you, yes, yeah. that is your responsibility. They might provide tools to allow you to do so, but they're not doing it for you on your behalf. And 365 is absolutely not doing it on your behalf. Neither is G Suite, neither is Salesforce, neither are most of these uh, well-known SaaS providers. So just research, you know, stop that positive assumption that it's protected, start a negative assumption that it's not protected, and then just start asking that question. Fantastic. That's been super valuable. And just for anyone who is still very new to data security and backing up, and can we just break that three, two, one down just so that everyone is left with total clarity? So what right. is the three? What is the three that we're looking for? So at least we, we used to say three cop. I've updated that to be three versions. So three versions of the data over time. And so this is, you, you, you have a spreadsheet. And so you're, you're updating that spreadsheet every day. That means today's version of the spreadsheet, yesterday's version of the spreadsheet, et cetera. Maybe it might be today, you know, this morning's version, this afternoon's version, et cetera. It's just yeah. three versions of that thing the, the, over the, time. The most up-to-date version, the version before those changes were made and the version before that. So that's just- Exactly. And, that's, and, and to me, that is a bare minimum and any decent backup system will give you way more than three. Okay. okay? Right. And then two, meaning on two different media. So let me give you an example of what doesn't meet that. So uh, do either of you use a Mac? Yes. Okay. So you know, you know Time Machine? Yes. Okay, so Time Machine is the thing that you can use to back up a Mac. The way to use Time Machine is you connect a portable hard drive, right? And it'll go, hey, there's a portable hard drive. Do you want us to use it to back it up? And you go, yes, and it'll format it. And then it will send Time Machine backups to that hard drive. What you can also do is you can go into Disk Utility, format your hard drive, the, the one on your laptop, into two different hard drives. Right. And then Time Machine will ask you if you want to use that other hard drive to back up the first hard drive. You just backed up hard drive one to hard drive one. You didn't do anything. Right. That's what the two is about. Make sure that you're storing it on something else. And then also 
an element of that too is to make sure that as best as possible, you store it on something that has a different risk profile. So it became harder when we went to disk-based backups because the, the primary is a disk and the secondary is a disk. So one example would be to go from a disk that's in your computer to a disk that's in a cloud service, which is a, a different kind of disk that's protected differently. So that's what the two is, to have it on two different kinds of things. And then the one is a lot easier to describe, which is just make sure that it is stored geographically apart from whatever it is that you're protecting. And again, it's always easier to show what isn't that. I'm sure you're aware of the OHV file that the fire that happened first part of last year, the cloud provider in France, where they lost this data center due to this huge fire that the that the fire suppression system was unable to suppress. Okay. Yes. And there is a class action lawsuit right now from customers, not that had data in OHV and failed to protect it and therefore lost data, they had data in OHV. This is what they're claiming in the lawsuit. They had data in OHV that they paid for the OHV backup service. And OHV said that the data would be, the backups would be physically separated or segregated or something like that from the things that they were backing up. Well, apparently physically separated meant we're going to put it over in the corner. But when this fire took over the data center, it took out the backups as well as the primary. And so that's what that one is about, making sure that you're putting it far enough away. And that mainly here, we're talking about disasters, natural disasters and fires and floods and things like that. But also in the modern cloud world, that needs to be far away. It's what we call an air-gapped copy. It needs to be stored in such a way that whatever might do damage to your primary, which includes now ransomware attacks, can't spread to that copy. Hopefully that's that puts hey, that, that to rest. That was really informative. Thank you. And I was taking notes about what I need to do to, to back up my uh, the data that I have. So your role at Druva is a chief technical evangelist. Mm -hmm. What does that entail? This. <laughs> Fair enough. That's great. This, this is literally my job, explaining the very technical things of data yeah. protection to people that they're concerned about their data. They're not like me and they don't spend their life doing backup and recovery, right? When I say things the way I say, so for example, when I talk about, you know, creating an air gap copy, all of the data that if Druva customers, we are a, we are a SaaS service that does data protection, right? And data resilience. All of the data that they send to us is air gapped. So we meet the 321 basic definition. We add a lot of things on top of the 321. But if you're an on-premises data center, you sort of have to manually create that process. If you use a service like Druva, you get that process and many other features uh, just as part of the service. Great. That sounds really helpful. Sounds like I can have Druva take care of all of the backups for all of my clients and not have to worry about it because you're following the 321. It's going to be at least three versions. We're going to have it across two different <clears> mediums. <throat> and if physically, they're going to be in separate places. So even if we do have a fire we saw like in Paris and the backups are separated in the corner, it's not going to be all uh, deleted and forgotten about. People can right. have that reassurance. So um, tell me, Curtis, who does Druva help? What's the What does your ideal customer look like? So sort of our sweet spot is mid to large enterprise, right? We're not a B2C product, right? We, there yeah. are competitors that go after, are you familiar with the term prosumer? Yes. Okay. So we have competitors that go after the prosumer market and the consumer market. That's not our market. So typically a customer is typically going to have at least, if we're backing up something like 365, it'll typically have something like 25 users 
and up all the way up to, we have customers that have hundreds of thousands of users. We have literally the largest companies in the world protecting their laptops and their 365 and G Suite environments. And then somewhere in the middle are companies with, like I said, the, the, the sweet spot is, is say 250, 500, up to 5,000 employees. Really what it's about, it's about the size of data that you have. There's no particular market that is, you know, we don't go after a particular vertical because all verticals need backup. We have uh, perfected a concept called a, a global source side deduplication. I have to explain all those words, right? So deduplication is this concept in backup, which is where we we look in your backup and we identify duplicate data within the backup at the at the sub-file level, right? This is not just that file is the same as this file. It's you've backed up this file five times and we already have those pieces. We just need this new piece because you added a new row in the spreadsheet. So think of deduplication from that level. And then we do it source side, meaning we do it at the, the beginning of the process, at the thing we're backing up. We identify the duplicate data before it's ever sent. And then we do that globally across your entire environment. So why does this matter? We charge you for the number of gigabytes that we store on your behalf in S3. By the way, I didn't mention our technology runs in AWS, okay? And so we store your data, we encrypt it before we send it, we slice it up all into these little pieces, figure out which pieces are new. We encrypt it, we send it up to AWS, store it in S3 on your behalf, which means by the way, we go beyond the two, S3 stores data in three separate locations. And uh, you get to pick the region, the AWS region that you're sending data to. So we're allowed, you know, we allow you to satisfy data sovereignty laws and, and that sort of thing. And the idea is that the hardest part of the of a typical backup and recovery system is the infrastructure. You know, my entire career, I help people build and design big backup systems and it's a giant pain. And then also we have to add to that is securing those systems has become an even bigger pain. So all of that is now done on the behalf of our customers. They don't have to worry about any of that design. All they have to do is point us at what we need to back up and give us some bandwidth. I like to say, you know, we help our customers get out of the backup business and get into the restore business. That sounds super helpful. So let me see if I've got this right. If if I'm a privacy pro and I'm listening to this and I'm, one of the things we've identified is, you know, we need a better solution for our backups. One of the options, if I'm a business that's got around 250 employees, anything from 25, you might actually be able to support, but it might not be the best fit. But anything from around 250 employees plus, if I'm supporting one of those clients, then it would actually make sense to come and have a look at the opportunities that Druva have so that we can outsource all of that over to you. I'll be confident that you have following the basic principles of the three to one in terms of you're going to take at least the last three versions of the document. I can be confident that you're going to follow the two as in it's going to be kept in two different places two different mediums and it's going to be in more than one physical location you'll be using aws so we get the added security of knowing that amazon web services is actually behind that and what you're saying is because of the way the charging or the way businesses are charged in the market a lot of companies will say this is how much data you've got this is the bill for it what you're saying is you actually do is you'll actually have a look forensically at the data and say, hey, you know, you've got 10 of the f same files. You don't actually need 10 of the same files. You just need this additional part to add to that. And that will save you the space. And then when it comes to restoring it, you don't have to go through tons of duplicate data because 
you've got exactly what you need and you've taken care of all of that. Does that sound about right, Curtis? Yeah, it sounds about right. I would add that the deduplication, it saves you in two ways. One is because we're reducing the amount of data that we're storing, we reduce your bill. And then just why we can do this service, including all of the infrastructure, at less cost than what a typical uh, on-premises backup system would cost. Uh, and then secondly, it also saves you because we do this, the data at the source side, at the client side. Why does that matter? It reduces by an order of magnitude or more the amount of bandwidth that you need to send us the data. And on top of all of this, we have all of these security layers that go, you know, three, two, one is like the very basic definition of a backup. To that, we add all of these security features, things like uh, role-based administration, the concept of lease privilege, making sure that in your account, you can you can specify who gets to do what so that no one person has the, the ability to, to destroy your environment. And we also add other protection features, such as if someone that is privileged in your environment goes rogue and deletes a bunch of backups, we actually have the concept uh, of where we're actually able to go in and recover that data for you, even if they deleted your backups, right? Think of it as a recycle bin for your backups. And then we're going to be adding additional features on top of that. The backups are all stored in a way so that you, you don't have to worry about ransomware attacking your backups. There's just no path, no route for them to, to get from A to B. And the, the beauty is you get all of this design, all of this security, and all of, you know all of the best practices without you having to worry about any of them. Yeah, that sounds like you've taken a lot of uh, pain away from my shoulders. So if I'm a private professional, I'm thinking about finding a solution that actually helps me to fulfill the obligation. And let's look at it from a GDPR lens. So one of the things I know I have to do is to have to make sure that there is confidentiality, integrity and resilience. And it's actually available. So you're saying, you know, you have identity and access management in place. so You can restrict it to the people who are allowed to see it. And even then you're saying if one of those people turns into a bad actor or make a mistake for whatever reason and something was to go wrong, you can actually be resilient against that and you can actually recover against that because you have those measures already put in place. You're taking care of all of the security side of things. And in terms of actual international data transfers, I can actually specify if I need that information to stay in Europe, if I'm working with a client in Saudi Arabia, for example, and they need to make sure it stays local, we can actually specify it stays local as well. So we can actually pick and choose where we want that data to stay. So we don't have to worry about any additional security measures that we might have to do for sending it out of the boundaries of whatever the jurisdiction we're in. Correct. Correct. Uh, about the only... We're in almost all of the full AWS regions. About the only one that I know that that we have zero plans to move into is China for obvious reasons. The government has requirements on services that run within the country, and we, we don't want to meet those requirements because one of our requirements is that all data is encrypted in such a way so that only the customer can see it, that even if someone got ultimate power, whatever that is within the Druva environment, they would not be able to see a customer's data. And by the way, some of our competitors that offer services, that isn't true of their products. And that's a requirement in China, right? Is that you you have to, the government has to be able to see data. And so we're not in that in that region, but we're in, I think, m almost all the other ones. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm familiar with the challenges that exist when trying to operate within the 
jurisdiction of China under the Chinese government. And uh, he did a couple of interviews with the BBC about why Huawei was banned from the UK. It was because of all of these risks that you're saying where the actual Chinese authorities insist they have to be able to see any access that goes across any kind of Chinese provider, whether it's in China or elsewhere, as long as it's one of those touch points that have something yeah. to do with China, then they have to be able to come and knock on the door and say, show me what you've got. And yeah, not very, not very privacy friendly. We can see that China is taking steps towards progressing and trying to meet the standards that have been set by other places of the world. They've recently introduced a very comprehensive piece of legislation to help them to come and join the rest of the world when it comes to protecting privacy and security. And I think they're they're thinking the right way, right? So we obviously have to say they have been quite immature compared to some other countries which are a little bit more forward thinking when it comes to privacy. But at least we can see they're taking, starting to crawl and hopefully soon they'll learn to walk and maybe they'll start sprinting as well. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a great market, but we have zero interest in creating a service that allows people to see our customers' data, right? So as long as that's not a requirement, I can see us eventually doing that. Absolutely. And as a data privacy professional, I completely respect that right to privacy. A customer has trusted you with something that's valuable to them. It should only be visible to them. They haven't given you something to put on show to on a museum. Otherwise, they would have just left it out for anyone to see. And their customers probably wouldn't appreciate that too. So I, I completely understand that and I respect that integrity. I have a question for you, Curtis. How did you actually get into data protection? Well, literally, it was the only job I could get, right? I was I was fresh out of the Navy. Uh, I was interested in computers. And my wife actually was working at uh, what at that time was the second largest credit card company, MBNA. I think they actually still have a, a presence over in the UK. I've seen the letters over there. But they they had big banks with big data centers, and I re- that that looked amazing to me. You know, as a person who was interested in computers, and basically it was the job I could get. And, and it's amazing to me here. It was a thirty five billion dollar company, and they handed me the keys to the kingdom. I'd been there like a week, wow. right? We we've addressed this issue, but historically, the backup person had the most power in the entire data center. Why? They needed the root or admin password to every server, and they needed the root or admin password to the backup server. So not only could they destroy all of the primary data, they had the ability to destroy the the, the copy of all the primary data, right? And I literally had that power within a week or two of joining the company. And this is why I'm saying it's a really really bad idea. And, And just really all that happened is I went from being the backup guy to being the person in charge of the backup team and then I, I left the, that company to go into consulting and I got sent to the headquarters of a large oil and gas company. And it turns out, and I was just sent to be a sysadmin. And when I got there, their backups were broken. <laughs> right. And so it just, it just sort of, you know, in the beginning, it was literally happenstance, right? And, and then at some point I did sort of realize, I think it was the point when I, I decided to write it an article about a script that I had written to back up Oracle. And I, I published it in a, in a publication called Unix Review, which was, you know, it's long since gone by the wayside. And I got letters, like 75 emails from around the world saying, oh, you've opened my eyes, you've, you know, da, 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 da. And, and that, I caught the publishing bug. And it was, it was shortly after that, that I decided to write my first book. 
and congratulations on all of your uh, publications, by the way. Thanks. Um, one of, that leads me to my next question, actually. So you've someone that started pretty much fresh into backup. You remember the words that your father had given you. I don't care yeah. what you do. Make me proud by doing whatever you do and become the best at it. And I yeah. can see that you've really invested in yourself and you've grown and you've become Mr. Backup of the industry, right? What led you to see the value in investing yourself to be the best you could possibly be and how instrumental has a mentor been as part of that process of your growth? Well, you know, honestly, I I guess it was just that work ethic that my father had taught me. You know, he was a a draftsman, a steel detailer. And, you know, everybody was, oh, is it an architect? You know, architect is is sexier than than a a draftsman, right? Uh, It's like, no, he's not an architect. He's this. But he was really good at it. And it still is really good at it. He's still working. And the sort of the self-determination, right? Uh, And then also... There was, I, I have a family, right? Um, met a wife. I, I live here in San Diego. I, I met her uh, right after um, getting out of the, well, I, I met her while I was in the Navy and we got married shortly thereafter. And uh, then I had two kids, two beautiful daughters, now a granddaughter. Oh, Somebody's got to pay those bills, right? <laughs> so um, worked my way forward. I, I would say the hardest thing to overcome, especially in the beginning, when you get into publishing, if you're going to publish something as an expert, well, it better damn well be right. Absolutely. And so I remember when I published my very first article, I was terrified that someone would call me on something and that it was wrong. And amazingly, something was wrong in the very the very first article that I published. I, I had a common misconception about the way hot backups work in Oracle. But when I went to write the book, you discover that there are plenty of people that will help, you know, be what they call technical reviewers. And so like the book that I just came out with, I think we had something like 46 people read, you know, all or part of that book. So it was good. Yeah. I I remember when I had my first little published as well, it was with one of the larger newspapers here in the UK and they did a digital version of it. There was lots of people coming and commenting and all sorts of comments. And I remember the first couple of hours I was reading the comments. And then one of my mentors said to me, he said, stop reading the comments. Don't read them. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Do what you do. Go and focus on the next thing you're going to do. That's going to be great. Forget about all of this stuff. And you know what? That was the best piece of advice I could have listened to at the time. Because I think a lot of people, especially with all of the social media, whether they're publishing something or not, when people are posting on LinkedIn, where people are offering thought leadership, a lot of people are worried about what other people are going to say. And you know what? There's always going to be somebody that has something to say. And just just recently, actually, I think it was uh, earlier this week, I went and I, did, I was a part of a podcast and I was talking about cookies. And forget the fact that I haven't actually charged and I've given up my time to come and share some stuff with people. There was uh, somebody who took that podcast and I was like, oh, one of the guys in the podcast mentioned invasion of privacy. And it made me cringe and it was cringeworthy and did a whole LinkedIn post about it. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. People will always find something. But how have you as an author, how has you as a professional, how has you as somebody who's at the top of their field had a resilient and strong mindset to overcome those things and still focus on doing what you do and make it motivate you to do even better? Well, I think you have to separate what I'm going to call valid technical criticism, right? Like this thing that you said is incorrect, 
right? A perfect example, again, is what I said about the way Oracle hot backups worked, right? Um, you know, I, I, I said that when you put Oracle in backup mode, the, the right stop to the database. That isn't the way they work. That it was incorrect. When the guy contacted me, I, I was more than happy to take that valid technical criticism of something I said, and I will correct that. That is fine, right? And I, I am more, in fact, on my podcast, you know, I'm, I'm often stating emphatic things, you know, that are technically my opinion. They're based on my experience, but they're technically my opinion. You know, like for example, SaaS systems must be backed up. There are people that disagree with me. I would love for you to come on my podcast and disagree with me and talk to me about your stuff. And you know what? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I will change. You have to separate that from you're an idiot or, you know, you stink as a presenter or, I would have I would have said it this way, right? I, I remember I, I remember having a heckler one time, like an actual heckler in yeah. a physical presentation, and he kept calling me out. And you know, it could be quite jarring, right? You're, you're standing, for, you're up there as the expert, you're presenting, and you have some guy over there that's you know that's that's yelling pants, you know. Yeah. And I remember he just kept saying things. And then at some point he just, and, and I was trying to ignore him at some point he, he said, after saying many other things, he said, well, if I was presenting, I would da, 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 da. And I just stopped. And I said, well, you know what, when you're presenting, you are more than like, you're more than welcome to say whatever you say. But right now I am presenting. So I would like to say what I want to say. What do you think? And it shut him up, right? You, you have to separate the that thing you are saying or writing is technically incorrect from you're a noob, you know, <laughs> people attacking. Because there are also people that are jealous because you're you're presenting. They think that you're fully yourself, right? You, you have to separate those attacks on your personal character and whatnot. That's the stuff that you really, I agree with your, your mentor that said, don't read that type of stuff. I still read comments, but if I see a comment that, because I still, I, I participate in Reddit. I mean, talk about comments. That's yeah. all it is, is comments. <laughs> yeah. I'll have a technical argument, but the moment an argument gets into an ad hominem attack, they are attacking my argument based on who I am as a person. Then I'm just, okay, well, you, you've you've given up the fight, right? I'm, I'm done arguing with you. So you have to, I, I'd say that's my best advice is to separate two, those two things. Thank you, Kurt. It's that super helpful advice because I know so many privacy professionals, they, they, they actually do want to speak at webinars. They actually do want to write articles. They actually do want to write very useful LinkedIn posts, Reddit posts, whichever platform they're using. But sometimes they find that they're holding themselves back because of this fear of criticism. Mm -hmm. And I've met people and I've mentored people who are brilliant and they have such amazing things things to share, but they're holding themselves back because of the fear. And one of the things that you've actually helped them to overcome from listening to you speaking today is that, you know what, go ahead and do it anyway, but just separate the stuff that is valid criticism because, you know, you, you are still a human. You can still make mistakes. You don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. So have a look at where there is something to learn. Take the feedback, make the mm -hmm. changes or improve on it next time. But the moment they start attacking you as a person because they're jealous, because they're feeling inferior, because of whatever it is that's going on, just ignore that, move on and find a way to overcome and be resilient. And sometimes you actually have to meet them head on a little bit like you did and make sure that they understand that it's not appropriate. And if they are so clever and if they are so great, then maybe they can go ahead and do the same thing. 
it takes yeah. a lot of guts to stand up in front of people to say something, to speak, to yeah, have a podcast, does. to present on a webinar. It's easy to go and make criticisms afterwards. I, I want to add, it also matters when you're presenting to use lots of phrases like, in my experience, as far as I understand, what I've seen is this. If you're going to say, there is no way you can do A, B, C, well, you're almost guaranteed there's going to be one way and, and then you're just wrong, right? Absolutely. But if you say, as far as I understand, there's no way you can cut your grass without a lawnmower. And, you know, and, and then somebody goes, well, hey, here's this magic thing that makes your grass not grow. And you're like, well, well, good for you, right? That means you're not, you weren't wrong. It's just in your experience, you've never seen that thing, right? Mm -hmm. I also, when I'm making comments about, especially if I'm commenting on groups of products, I always say the vast majority of, or, you know, I try not to say all products do this. So you have to be careful of how you say things. There's that as well. Thank you. That's been super helpful. And for anyone who's listening, who has been holding themselves back, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that this, having listened to your words of uh, wisdom and advice, will actually help them to go past that and starting to focus on the great things that could happen and how they can really make the careers thrive and how they can really go out and start making a valuable contribution to society so that together we can start empowering businesses to really adopt honest privacy practices. You mentioned your podcast a couple of times, and I know you're the host of a podcast called Restore It All. Tell mm -hmm. me a little bit more about your podcast and who it's really ideal for. It is basically a podcast dedicated to protecting data. It gets its name from a parody song that I wrote that's actually a parody of Adele's Rolling in the Deep. Uh, you can actually find a YouTube video. My daughter actually is the, the singer on the song. She's actually pretty good singer. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, so the phrase that you remember in, in the song, uh, you could have had it all in the mm -hmm. Adele song. So yes. that's, you could restore it all. So it's, it's, a, <laughs> okay. it's a song about a girl that gets her, she deletes her data. And then she finds out that her company's backup system is, uh, is crap. And so she doesn't, she doesn't get her back her data back. And so she's very angry. So that's, that's what the song was, which actually preceded the, the, the podcast. So that's where the podcast name come comes from. And it just, comes from this idea of being able to protect and restore uh, data. So we talk about, we, obviously we talk about backup and recovery a lot. We talk about ransomware a lot. We talk about privacy. We talk about cybersecurity and just anything that's on the periphery of that. And we we just try to get, you know, interesting guests. My favorite get of last year was we actually got, we got Peter Krogh, which is the author of a book called The Damn Book. It's Digital Asset Management. And the first version of that book is where the term, the 321 rule came from. So that was, that was a good get. So we, we just do all of that. I try to explain things in non-technical. It, it's a technically leaning podcast, but I try to, I don't want to leave non-technical people out. So I try to explain anything that's non-technical. My co-host is really good at calling me or, or another guest if they throw out a, a TLA, right? A three-letter acronym yeah. and then don't define it. But it's really just about people that are concerned about backups and, and encryption and security and things like that. Awesome. That's super helpful. Curtis, our time together is coming to an end. I know you're super busy and you've got a lot of things to do. What we usually finish off with is the host gets asked a question. So you have the opportunity to ask me a question. Over to you. If I could say one thing and then ask you the question. Uh, one yeah. thing I forgot to mention is uh, if people are interested in Druva, uh, we do have a, a webpage, uh, druva.com slash podcast. They'll find something just for them there. My question for you, sir, is 
How many of those books behind you have you actually read? So this behind me, if I'm honest, is not actually my Oh, bookshelf. it's actually... <laughs> it's, so it's, 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 it's a screen. It's, it's a, screen. a screen. Right. My bookshelf is back in my bookcase over there. And gotcha. I think, I'm going to be honest, from my book, from my current book collection, I've probably read about 40% of the books I have. Yeah. One of the challenges I have is I'm a prolific book buyer. So when I'm speaking to my mentors, when I'm speaking to people that I respect and they're recommending books to me, I will add them to my Amazon and I will buy them straight away and I will have them. Oh, really? The challenge is time. Time is a big challenge. So I don't get through them as quickly as I would like, but I am an avid reader. I do love reading books. But one of the books I'm reading right now is actually super interesting. It's actually called Tribe it's funny. of... It looks like you're looking at the bookshelf. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's called Tribe of Mentors, and it's by Tim Ferriss, the guy who wrote The 4-Hour Workweek. And it's really okay. interesting. It's because it's a collection of the people that he's interviewed on his podcast, and he's taken mm -hmm. the best bits out. So you can pick the book up, and you can actually read any story and it makes sense and you don't have to follow it cover to cover so i find that you know when i haven't got time to read for about half an hour an hour as long as i pick that book up and i read a little bit of it i can still take the box off at the end of the day when i say you know what today i've actually added to my mental knowledge yeah i actually like audiobooks and i i find that if i find that if i'm like if you if i buy an actual printed book it often will sit there a long time but an audiobook, I can use it while I'm doing lots of other things. For example, woodworking, I mentioned there, I can I can mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. listen to that. And, and so I find I get more content into my brain that way. But, uh, you know, different people are different, you know? Yeah, exactly. Everybody has a different learning style. And uh, not many people can, not everyone is like me. Many people like you can actually multitask. For me, I can only focus on one thing at a time. <laughs> like my wife will tell you, sometimes we are driving and I'm having a conversation with her and I'll miss my turn because I'm so fixated on the conversation. So for me, yeah. my learning style is I like to read I'm very auditory digital. And it's really interesting what you're saying because we started the Privacy Pros podcast and it went out as an audio uh, file, as all podcasts do. And recently, I, I did a couple of polls on LinkedIn following some of the things I've been learning about how different people learn. Um, so at the Privacy Pros Academy, one of the things I try to do is regardless of what preferred lead representation or learning system somebody prefers, I try to communicate to them in all ways so they get a fully enhanced learning. And whether you're someone who is visual, someone who's auditory or someone who is actually kinesthetic, you will get the most out of the session and, and I touch all the touch points. And one of the things that led us to come to was that, you know what? So many people are actually visual learners and they might not necessarily listen to the podcast, but they would actually watch a video of us talking. And that's why we also are putting these videos or these podcast recordings out as YouTube, which is why we have the cameras on. I, I'm, I have done the exact same thing as what you just described on the Restored All podcast, literally as of a few weeks ago for the amazing. same exact reason that you said. That's amazing. Curtis, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You as well. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro. Please leave us a four or five-star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast, or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.